Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the main event. Introducing Carissa Green Industries. Let's get ready to launch. with Dr. Rebecca Wynn, bringing nearly 20 years of experience in the information security, assurance and technology to the table. Her insights and observations were really fascinating and no doubt the reason she's seen as a game changer, always 10 steps ahead in developing and enforcing cybersecurity and privacy best practices and policies. We talked about her work throughout her career and the industry in general, including her time leading the information security privacy at a Fortune 100 company. Without further ado, welcome and let's dive on in. We always like to start with getting to grips with our guest backgrounds. It provides some context. Can you tell our listeners about your professional history? Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, first, I want to thank you for having me on the show because it is an honor and pleasure to be here. Oh, and thank I, you. So excited yeah. to have you, actually. I'm really excited to, ha- to do this conversation. Yeah, it's going to be great. I, I do need to take a moment, though, and just remind all the um, people out there who are listening to the podcast that all my views and my opinions are mine, and they shouldn't infer that has anything to do with my past employers, my current employers, or my future employers. So since I have the disclaimer in place, and I'll go forward now, we can have a great conversation together. Perfect. Looking forward to it. Yeah, so my my background is a little bit all over the place, and I'm going to go a little bit long because I like to show women that no matter where you come from, that you can be very successful in this career, and all your life lessons helps you to be really great in this career. So I, I graduated in high school really in about two years, um, which is one of those overachievers. Um, mm-hmm. Went overseas, and, and then I started school. I wanted to be really a, a pre-vet, so I went in as a chem major, and I did that for well over three years, and I'm like, man, you know what? I don't like blood, and when am I going to figure out what I really, really want to do? And I talked to some counselors, and they said, well, it's not going to be until you get your PhD in chemistry, and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> you know, got three more years, you know, to go ahead and get out of my undergrad and my master's, and then I got to get my PhD before I might want to learn how to do something. So I actually switched gears and I do photography. So I switch over photography. And then uh, I, as I told you, I started college early and I got out early. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to have to go $150,000, you know, US dollars and a hawk on carrying cameras around. I'm too smart for that. So I went back and got a double MBA and I had a double MBA in finance and marketing by the time I was 21. Whoa, um, that's a lot. Yeah. yeah and then I'm I just going to sit quietly out. right in the corner over here now. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I found out that, you know, a 21-year-old with a double MBA, not a lot of work experience was um, impressive in paper. People liked me, but uh, to do an internship was pretty hard. Um, and I did get an offer to me, like, go into the financial sector. So I went into financial planning, insurance selling with Mutual of Omaha and the New England Financial. And I was number one in the nation form both, you know, top rookie, go-getter. But I literally hated every single second of it. Uh, like the people I was helping, but didn't like all the background, you know, selling competitions and stuff. But what I had done is I actually really started using the computer by um like running the claims for those companies, looking to see how cost advantageous it would be for them to self-insure uh, themselves. And this is before it was even big for companies to do that. And I ran all my own actuarials and stuff like that. Maybe the companies don't want to hear you say mm-hmm. that on air. But I did that and, and wrote a lot of uh, Excel and, and, and access and stuff, programs like that before it was really big. And 
you know, I said, you know, life is way too short for me to, to be in uh, something that I hate for 40 years. So I actually went back to school. And then that's when I got my IT degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, Can I just ask, what I- made you jump into IT after doing photography and you did chemistry and you did finance? You know, because I was I was developing all those programs myself. Right. And when I first got my first computer, I liked to be online and, and see different things there was. And I just had an aptitude for it. And then I remember back, you know, when I was in college and and that's when um you know first things were starting out and programming that all my classes i ace i'm one of those people who literally got top marks and everything and everyone says it's so great that you're a great student you get a and everything no it's not because you're good at so many things what do you concentrate on mm-hmm. right you know, I would have been better, I think, if I would have failed at a lot of places and like settled at one, I was the other. Um, and then I was one of those things that my mom said, you know what, you know, go for it. You know, we're saying that happens if you don't go for it, as you find that's the area you really don't want to be in. So I went for it. I got I got out of our degree in two years. I really enjoyed the the programming and the databases. And so I was one of the few people when I first um, came out of school that I was immediately hired. I uh, worked in semiconductor company where I went ahead and developed um, programs that were specialized programs to the semiconductor industry. And I named them cool things like Cyclops. You know, I was all the Greek tragedies type stuff. Um, and I did that for numerous years. And then from there, again, I'm looking at the code and how people can break the code. It was easy to get into QA work. And it's funny how I just kind of led my path more and more and more towards being in information security until I picked up my first information security job um, with the financial sector, early morning services, uh, mm-hmm. where I was the information security officer. And, and they're owned by like Wells Fargo and, and, and all those top banks there. And so I had to look at how to make sure the data flowing between us was all secure. Um, and we did, that was, we did account owner authentication was my security puppy. So that was trying to make sure that the people who wrote their checks and things along those times were actually authenticated. So that was a really good base for me. And then I jumped to work for the um, NCI information systems that was in the government sector. Um, really always have a strong core of, of the greater good. So I was there for six years. So I was able to go ahead and travel the world um, securing military um, items. And you think about that is in all the uh, people we touched, all the countries we touched, like Australia, um, mm-hmm. and trying to make sure that we keep that safe from the bad guys. So I did that for well over six years um, and tried to do the greater good. So on there, I actually moved all the way. I did it like a lot of stuff. You know, I was able to do secure architecture and I was a lead certifier and I was a senior principal security engineer. And I got to do a lot wow. of cool things and see a lot of stuff because you think about when you're in that work, you don't have 13 months or 14 months or 15 months to do something. I would jump in. They call me a woman in the army because I would jump in and go like, you know, no one else got this done and you got to get this done in two weeks. Cause if not, it's going to affect the people who are out there, you know, fighting, you know, fighting mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and Iraq and all that kind of stuff. So it was really great for me to get my boots in the ground and then know that you could give me a big project and I literally have to get it done. And what's it going to take to get it done? And you got to do it right. So that was a great base for me um, to then switch into fine tech <laughs> where you're a startup and then you got to go ahead and you got to think about a startup that wants to go and be either acquired or wants to go ahead and get to a place where they can actually be purchased. And while they were developing, they're just developing like, you know, mad rabbits. Um, but now you got to come in and put all the security and the wrapper and all that kind of stuff. So that. That's what led me to LearnVest that then was acquired by Northwestern Mutual. So I had to lead them through the pre-acquisition, the acquisition or post-acquisition. You got a, you know, someone who's a disruptor in the industry in fine tech to someone who's 160 years old. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, so, yeah. 
So that's it. I've, I've been the whole gamut. And then um, after three years on that, I went ahead and now I'm um, back with Matrix. And I had worked in um, with the government. I worked with the military hospitals and I worked in other hospitals before that as well. So now I'm back over on the health side. So, you know, it's all good. But I want to make sure people understand that, that when they read my resume or they when I'm having talks like you guys, I do have a very, very broad and deep understanding, which makes it really well now that I'm at my age that I am now. Obviously, I'm 29. Um, <laughs> because what it does allows me to speak to a multiple groups of people, but I also can smell BS a mile and a half away and hopefully go ahead and get a company out of that. And and then obviously for talent, I can see people who are hunger, who who really are thought leaders, who are people who won't settle for mediocre, who want to excel mm-hmm. to excellence. So it allows me to go ahead and pick teams and put them together who I can help take them to the next level. They don't have to be the top in their career, but maybe they got the biggest hunger and that's who I usually go to get hired for me to work on my team. So I know that was long-winded, but I'm hopefully people out there who think they're all over the place, it will work together for your good as long as you become a constant learner. And then as life teaches those lessons, go with the flow that it wants you to go with. And then all those lessons that you learn, you'll be able to put them to use for good. I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think my career was a little bit like that as well when I was previously going for jobs, recruitment consultants would say, you have a very unique background, Carissa. But I also think that that's made me think a little differently to perhaps other people and potentially like yourself because you don't have the, so to speak, the traditional background. And when I was working in Australia's largest bank, they said to me, we want to hire people with different backgrounds who actually give us different perspectives because if we hire all the same type of people, we're going to get the same result, especially in cybersecurity you need to have people thinking outside of the box a lot more. So to me, I think it's a great thing that you've had a very diverse background and it really showcases that through your journey. But what I'd like to touch on next is your medical in, your medical industry experience. And it's seemingly under a great deal of pressure, even compared to other verticals from cyber attacks. The industry seems, at least from the outside, to be going through a huge amount of change with IoT and the like. And increasing resilience on complex data records, what do you see as the risk areas here? Uh, a plethora of them, but I'll try and cover like just a couple of them. You sure. know, it is interesting when you look at this vertical because, you know, thinking back, um, about 2015 is when we really saw it as a record year for, for data breaches. It was almost a little over six times um, the amount of data breaches in 215 as was in 214 and previously. And that was a huge wake-up call mm-hmm. for, for the industry. I mean, they were just sitting on their heels quite a bit. And what we saw then as we, we, as we saw more people becoming aware of what is a data breach in these hospitals and anybody else who's in healthcare is going to breach, is we saw from the security side, is we saw we got money, right? So we could actually start to go out there and hire the right talent. We could actually start getting the tools and people had to start thinking about so security be part of IT. And, and just because someone is a great um, infrastructure engineer does not mean that they can run the security side. So we started seeing a lot more of the development of security and risk and and privacy along those periods of time. And and as we saw that, we actually saw that we still heard about data breaches and things like that, but we started to see that people were starting to sure things up in 2016 and 2017. And so some of those areas that we would see, you know, things were still set on default settings and, you know, and websites are wide open and, and not protected. We saw some of that stuff going away. 
And so what happened is, is that we saw like beginning of 2018, there was a little bit, a lot less that when you look at the statistics and you look at the bar overall, that things started getting a little more under control. And, and you weren't seeing that people were still getting breached. Today, you saw that the breaches that were coming out were being there was something that was being under investigation for three years or four years or two years. That's what you heard about. Mm-hmm. But what that is, is, is that I saw is that then people start getting a, a false sense of security, right? We got our security yes. all handed up. So then what they did is they cut all our budgets. <laughs> and then they, then they wow. started wanting to go back again and say, okay, should security be under IT? Do you need these number of people? So right when we started to go ahead and get from a, a CISO point of view, where we've always end up being, have to be tactical all the time because you're literally putting out a fire and out of fire and out of fire. Yes. And you can't get the strategic yes. long term. We finally go ahead and say, whoo, I kind of got stuff where I got it handled and I can kind of start getting strategic. And what do they do? They start cutting budgets again and you and you don't have the personnel and then you have to go back into your technical. And that's the reason why I do think companies who go for a system who is only strategic are missing the boat. Because if you don't have somebody who could be tactical and strategic, you know, when you have those laws where they cut budgets, you're going to be in trouble if you have someone that's totally strategic. So we have Absolutely. that going on right now where people, you know, we don't have always have the budgets and the personnel. And as soon as we want to go ahead and you really get the tools that can really um, make us on the forefront um, and they take that budget away from us, it makes it really hard when you're talking about, like you said, the Internet of Things, when you're talking about the machine learnings and things like that. How do you fix them when when someone is looking at a pump for the heart? Or things like that. They're not. They were. They were looking at saving lives. They weren't looking at that pure time of someone hacking it. Mm-hmm, that wasn't even on anybody's radar. Absolutely. So, you know, even more recently here, when we went ahead and we saw the whole pacemaker um, finagle, on do you go ahead and say, hey, guess what? You need to come in because we need to change the firmware in your heart. You know, they ended up not calling anybody in to do that because you could lose your life by doing that as well. So there, there are things like that that come in and no one's ever thought about them. Um, when you're looking at, you know, all those machines, the MRIs, it, it, all that stuff that has personal data going on that they were never designed in today's world of hackers and people trying to get to that metadata. So I do think that that's going to be a growing concern um, coming up in the next year. And we, we've seen it actually December and, and November of this year as well, too. The problem is, is what you're going to have to do is you're really the only solution on that is, is come up with more secure machines. And those older machines are just going to have to be changed out. But in the meantime, you cannot save a life because of that data. Can I just ask, when you obviously, you know, people have their heart in the right place making pacemakers and things like these types of machines. So it's for good, for good reason. But like you said, they don't, they're not thinking from a security standpoint. But is it more of a mindset thing? Because I know even people who are software engineers, they build things on functionality, not on how secure is this. So do you think it's going to be like a mindset shift or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, it's a pair. It's got to be a paradigm shift. And, and I've um, preached this for years. I've, um, I'm a, a person who's learned under Anne Kabukian, who was one of the leading people for privacy by design and and now privacy and security by design and default. And I think yes. that's the mindset that we have to be in. And, and when I speak to, I'll just say the younger generation and millennials and, and before, because you're generally the ones right now who are having the, the most creative ideas is usually on that group. When I have a chance to speak to them, it's not that they don't want to go ahead and program security and privacy and think about those lines. It's no one's had that conversation with them. I think, and that's one thing that I do as a CISO as well, is I go and talk to the developers. I talk to the QA staff and, and I'm belly to belly with them. So I'm a partner with them. 
And so I tried to teach them how you can think about privacy by design. How can you think about risk management? You know, if they want access to databases, why do you want access to the databases? What are you trying to accomplish? What is it, the piece of data that you need to do your job? And then, you know, have those discussions with them so I can get them that information so they can actually develop things and do things more in a more mindful manner. I think what it is is that we got to get out of our office and we got to get belly to belly to people. People are trying to do really great things, but you just got to have that conversation with them. And if you can get them where it's early in, in the life cycle, it's going to be built in. So I really just think as a society, a world society, we've got to get to privacy and security by design and default. And that was one of the great things about, um, you know, the whole discussions with GDPR and things like that, that brought it again to the forefront. Um, and obviously the other regulations that you've had in Ireland and obviously Australia and the United States being in the news quite a bit as well as the Asian countries is I think that's one of the things that you're going to find in 2019 is that we really have to, as a society, forget about the government, but as a society, us people determine what we want is our privacy and our security by design and then mandate that our leaders bring it to us because obviously them just thinking about themselves does not work. No, no, absolutely. And I think that's a really important point that you you, you raised there. But what, I, what I'd like to move on to next and, and probably going a little bit back on the previous question is, do you think that this is increasing attack surfaces responsible for roughly 100% delta over other industries? Yeah, I think I think one of the things is just because when you have something happen in health healthcare, one, um, no one wants their personal health information out there, so you uh, see, no. <laughs> you see, you see quite a lot. And and when we just even had Anthem, right? Anthem is a high trust certified, and then we saw that their breach, and that brought up, um, you know, what about high trust? But people don't pay attention to even things like high trust, um, um, th- that you're only. Um, checked over for certain areas. You tell them what areas to test over and people have to be more mindful anytime they look at any certification someone carries is you need to be able to read it and what would they really certified against, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things that that kind of stuff with the healthcare has brought it to the forefront. But obviously recently we've had the newspapers getting breached. We've had data centers go down because, you know, someone didn't go ahead and look at an old switch. So we are um, seeing other areas come to the forefront and still makes it to the same core issue is that security and is again and privacy by design has to be up front you doing your job and just waiting for an email is not going to work anymore mm-hmm. whether you're on the infrastructure team or networking team or your identity team or whatever security team you literally need to do your job and you got to and if you're not looking at those little crannies and everywhere that someone else can get in believe me someone else is looking to get in because one of the things is about the people who want to be harmful to either you as a person on your computer or your personal computer or you as a company is they're using all the tools that you have. If you have data loss prevention, believe me, they've looked at all those ones too. If you have any antivirus, you have it. If you have any spam filters out there, they have it too. And they're looking at all those definition files that are coming by default from a company and then looking at ways to get around it. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be more mindful. You got to really think that the bad guys are there trying to come in, not assume that they're not going to come in. And that's one of the biggest things that I do see even talking with the executive boards. It's, yeah, but it hasn't happened. Or, you know, it, it hasn't happened to anybody that I know of yet. Right. No, okay. no, you got you to get away from that. And as you said, is since the number of things that have come in that connect to the internet has grown exponentially, mm-hmm. that's that many areas that someone can go ahead and attack you. You could be in an office and that coffee maker, that light bulb that your, tech, your technical team put in and then think about that, that could be something that actually breached all the data patient records um, in your hospital. 
But a lot of people aren't looking at that. What about the vending machine that comes in and they go ahead and they put a Wi-Fi signal on the vending machine? Who's checking the vending machines that come in with a Wi-Fi signal? Exactly. It's never, no one's ever thought about that before, but you have to think about that now, and that, which means that security teams need to be able to have viewpoints on that. So it's, it really takes a paradigm shift of many companies because they haven't known where to put security at all. They, you know, we've kind of been, as my, as my say, is the bastard child, the bastard child. I know that it's important and I know I got to check this box, but I really don't know where to put you and who I should have you talking to, even reporting structure wise, so you can get things done. So that whole paradigm shift has to change. And as you said, with the hospitals, with everything coming into, that's where the struggle is, is with executive board all the way down is how do they position us? How do we even go ahead and tell them how many people we need on a team? Because I, it's hard for me to equate to sales. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I tell people, how do yeah, you know I do my, yeah, how do you know I do my job really well? Is because I, I haven't been breached. Or if you do get breached, how quickly you can get over the breach? You know, I'm more of a, a insurance policy against you versus in sales. But everyone is so geared to, as you said mm-hmm. earlier, about sales and operations and quick to market. You know, security is seen as a hindrance to that because I want yes. you to put security stuff in first. And that's the paradigm shift that I think really has started this past year with all the new regulations coming out on privacy, where mm-hmm. we've been wanting them to think about that. Um, c- companies and countries are going to have to be forced that way, because I think we as people are going to force it. So I don't know if that really fully answered your question. It's, it's pretty big, but that's the reason it's got the tax surface um, with all the internet things. Um, security staffs are short. Executives don't really know what to do with us as a security team. And they don't even, you know, you talk about, they don't even know who we should be reporting into our lines. Um, you know, the risk officer doesn't make sense. A chief privacy officer doesn't make sense. A lot of times mm-hmm. CIOs anymore are only strategic and they don't understand any word that's coming out of our mouth. It really means that the chief information security officers really need to have a seat on the executive board. And that's mm-hmm. why you're seeing a little bit of push that way because we are our own unique uh, viewpoint. Um, until they get that, I think it's going to be uh, it's going to be trouble. More and more things are going to be coming into companies, and we just don't have sight on them. So, what you're sort of saying is big changes are equated to bigger deltas in a tax surface, and therefore more attacks. Is it that simple? More things that people are going to attack, you're going to have more things to attack. Um, as I said earlier, as we go ahead and from a medical perspective. There is a, a, a big thing on development uh, and trying to save lives and bringing things in to try and make people's lives easier. I tell people to make people's lives easier ends up causing me a bigger headache, right? If you think <laughs> about it, I can't, right I can't get up. I can't, yeah, hearts and fires, but I said, do you think about it? I, I can't even get up to go ahead and turn my TV on and off. I have to use my phone or I can't even get up to turn my light switch. I got I got to go ahead and I got to use my phone, right? I, I can't get off and, and do the coffee maker. I got to turn my phone, right? You know, and those are easy, but I said, those are the big attack services as well, too, that people don't realize that they're getting attacked all the time. In hospitals, it's because there's machines that have been brought in over the years to go ahead and to save lives. And no one ever thought that they were attack service, but now they are attack service. And now you're caught. Because someone's going to go ahead and breach them. They weren't built in with those security protocols in place, but you're not going to not save lives. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be those new renditions of them. Um, it's actually going to be saving them. So that's the one thing that you get caught on, on the medical facilities is, you know, hem- the risk reward. How many lives versus your privacy data is worth the play? 
Right. Um, and that's, that's the challenge on that one there. It's really the new generation of equipment that has to have those mm-hmm. security protocols in place. So yes, healthcare is always going to be slightly behind the curve on that because now that it's, it's become to the forefront, they really have to engineer mm-hmm. new equipment with the security protocols in place. Absolutely. And I think how is the bigger GRC aspect relevant for healthcare and helping reduce this count things like HIPAA and high trust? Well, you know, HIPAA, um, whether it's our version or our equivalent of Canada, one thing is, you know, that was developed years and years and years and years ago. And it's one of the things that it tried to give you a little bit of a framework on what we expect of you, but it didn't mm-hmm. tell you how to do it. And they, right. and they and they have a determination of, of you as a company. Is this really um, a requirement or is it a recommendation? You should have encryption of what, right? If I use a one-letter cipher, that's encryption. Mm-hmm. You know, I do, do have to tell people that if you're in Excel and you shorten the column and you get those those hashtags, that's not encryption. Mm-hmm. Um, but but, but is this, <laughs> now you got that one. Um, but they don't tell you exactly what to do. You need to, ha- you know, your passwords need to be complex. What do you mean by that? Um, so it, it's always been something that's, that said, hey, this is what we expect. And this, this is what, you know, for us, the center of uh, Medicare, you know, CMS is going to go ahead and test you against but what they're going to see is if you had a breach or not and if you shouldn't have done one of those items and then you always have to then go to either ours national institute of standards and technology or another one of um, european um, equivalent all that to actually go ahead and say what do they say is best practices you always have to put that with that and then when you go ahead and you looked at high trust high trust went ahead and said hey we got all these other frameworks out here you know let's go ahead and try and come up with one uniform framework to try and make life a little bit better for, for everybody. So let's go ahead and put, you know, HIPAA in there and let's put CASO and let's put the ISO in there and let's try and put these things together to try and come up with one uniform fragment. And that's where you still see people doing that, right? You have the NIST who did the cybersecurity framework, which is part mm-hmm. of I trust, but everybody's trying to come up with this magic framework. And I said a framework in and of itself, thank you very much, right? I have a framework on how to eat but it doesn't stop me from eating badly, <laughs> right? I think that, <laughs> I think what it is is that we got to quit worrying about frameworks and who's got the best framework. It's still the fundamentals, right? I still have to, I still have to change defaults. I still have to have a password or a passphrase or something that I'm changing on a regular basis that I don't trust anybody with. But we need to do is we need to have more stringent, I think, testing against that and uniform testing on that. It doesn't matter what CPA firm that you're hiring, that they will all test the same. I've seen people mm-hmm. even with their SOC 2 that they've gotten passed on their SOC 2 and they literally have no security in place whatsoever. There mm-hmm. should be accountability to that. If you have a certification that someone has tested against you, high trust, SOC 2, ISO 27001, I should have the same assurance that that was tested at the same level as it would be if if you tested my company. And that's what's not the same. It's not uniform testing, even with the top four um, CPA firms. It's not uniform. That's the one thing I think that we need to concentrate more on is the people who are testing against these frameworks to certify companies, that they are uniform. And if they go ahead and they're breached in an area, that they're held accountable because you just signed somebody off on something that you fully didn't test that's what I think I wish people would concentrate more on that than just to come up with another framework. To me, it's just coming up with another food pyramid. Yeah, uh, no, I, I understand. I think that makes logical sense. But wh- wh- where do you see the future then of the development and the engineering then of these medical devices? Because obviously you said, like I said, people got their heart in the right place, but 
there's so many of these things coming to market and admittedly the issue is that people can potentially die uh, from something going wrong or being hacked or something like that. So in your honest opinion, where do you see the future of that and how uh, can we as a, as a you know security society actually help mitigate some of these risks? I just find it fascinating because we're, we're trying as a, as a, you know, being very uh, advanced with technology to help people. But then we get hit with security problems, like you said, that, yes, you want to create all of these new devices, but then you've got the longest list because you're sitting there trying to protect every single thing. But I just want to know, like, where do you actually see that? Well, one of the things that started really this year was um, NIST and some of the other um, big industry standards. They've actually come up with the first medical device um, checklists or security recommendations. And I think that is a good start. Um, yes. And this is one, but they're not the only one. But the one thing is, is since we have those starting, now we as security professionals need to be able to have time to test against that. And one of the things I do know about a lot of these devices, they get into hospitals or in other places, and a lot of times the security teams don't even know about it. So they weren't even brought in early on the purchase cycle right. to be able to go to go ahead and to test that. So one of the things that I do is I actually get myself embedded within the procurement um, cycle. So one, I look at the contracts. Um, I look at the EULAs. I look to see what they promise and are not promised. And I work with the legal teams to actually put language in. So to hold those companies liable, even with their software upgrades and things like that, are, you know, are the third party tested? Do they pen test them at least once a year and things like that? And I actually put those requirements in our contracts um, and take a look at that. And, and I know a lot of people don't do that, but I think we security um, um, professionals have to, to think beyond that. We really need to get into the procurement so we can actually go ahead and be part of the buying solution um, as well as contracting, making sure that we can actually hold the companies we do business with and vendor management um, mm-hmm. Responsible for these, and then we need to be able to test things as much as we can. I mean, sometimes you're stuck, right? Sometimes the Lily is like, "This is the only company that makes this device," so you're stuck with that one. But I can at least go ahead and put some hooks into the contracting to go ahead and and make you more aware and all that stuff like that, and to go ahead and hold you accountable that you are actually going ahead and having an independent third party test and things along those lines. Um, that's one thing I, I think that we can help a little bit. Um, our cause is actually make the manufacturers held accountable, even if it's in contracting versus a legal law, that they actually put these in place. And then the other thing is, as I said, as much as we can as professionals that we can get out there and we can talk to developers and QA and people along those lines to make them aware of this mm-hmm. um, so they can be our voice. Your voice by yourself doesn't do much, but like as you do as we podcast, our voice gets out to many people. And if we can just have a ripple effect that we touch one person, that ripple effect is, is actually massive. Um, so that's where I think we need to do, and we also need to go ahead and support this in different places like that and get involved who are coming up with some of these tests. You can go online. All those guys have drafts when they come on. Mm-hmm. I think I do this. I, I encourage everyone else to do it. Read the drafts. What's your recommendations? What do you see that needs to be changed? What do you see that they need to go ahead and add to the next level? Be part of the solution, not not just a, a sit back and, and watching the game. Well, that's the next thing I'd like to ask you about is I know from your talks that you're a big believer in in evolving communications as a vital aspect of good security policy. 
where do you see the cause of disconnect that most organizations seem to suffer? Because what I'm hearing from what you've just said is, you know, like we always talk about talking to development teams, being embedded in the procurement process, making sure the language in the contract is stipulated so people are aware, they're held accountable in terms of vendor management and everything like that. I'd love to get your opinion on this matter because it's obviously an area that we're passionate about and talk to people all over the globe about this issue. Yeah, it's interesting when I when I speak at conferences and, and I, I talk to my peers, we, we all seem to, to come at least this year. Um, and actually last year, it seems to be consistent that we don't we really don't believe the executive boards. Um, it doesn't seem a lot of companies are really you know, in alignment with each other, um, you know, the infighting, the turf wars and all that other kind of stuff seems to to go on quite a bit. And, and if you can come with a board, it's not like that. <laughs> it makes life a lot easier because the one thing about us as a security professionals is that we get our directives from the board. The board actually determines risk. My job is not to have zero risk in a company. If a company has zero risk, you know, they're not going to be a, a company, right? Um, people forget about that. Data has to flow for money to come into the company, which actually pays you and I. Um, it, 100% risk-free, 100% security, data can't flow, right? Or it can't flow timely where you can go ahead and you can actually grab that sale. So there's a portion in there that, that the company's going to accept. They're going to either, they're going to accept and say, hey, I'm going to go ahead and self-fund. If that happens, I'm going to take care of it buy insurance for it, or maybe they get a third party to go ahead and do that aspect of the company in a better risk manner. But we get that from the executives. And so if the executive team is not cohesive and on the same page, it's really hard for you as a security leader to figure out where the risk tolerance of the company is because they don't know where they're going. You know, they don't know what their tactical and strategic imperatives are really going to be. So it's hard for you to kind of fit in there. And that's one thing I, I, I've seen that quite a bit um, in companies or they get so focused only on operations and I got to make these sales to please somebody that they don't really take the time, even in maybe even an acquisition to fully look at the risk of the company. So that's one thing that our challenge is, is to really try to get them to sit down. And it's like, really, what is the risk? You guys can accept this risk, but you need to sign your name to it because I'm not going to sign my name to it. One of the things that I love someone to do a study on is the chief information security officers, even the chief information officers or CTOs, the ones who are more technical. How many people have, how many of them lost their jobs over the last year, two years or three years, but they fully warned the company of that mm -hmm. risk and no one would listen to them um, because we're always the first one to get fired, but maybe we're not the first one to get fired on that. So th that's the challenge I think right now is is really getting is really executives and the executive teams really getting alignment, so then they can actually go ahead and, and hear our, our words. And and I see that pretty consistently in the people I talk to. It's the same frustration. Um, is you know can you actually even get four executives really in the room to listen? Even when we talk to the boards, you know we the joke is you know you can put you know you can they can tell you you're going to have thirty minutes, but you're probably going to have three minutes. Yeah. Um, to try and make that communication um, on them. But that's one thing I would say for anybody who's a chief information officer out there, chief financial officer or chief legal officer on there, just, you know, you guys, when you guys are on the same page with each other, it makes our lives very, very hard to even attempt to go ahead and to get you secured within the risk tolerance of the company when you guys can't define that for us. If not, you're putting the burden 100% on us. Um, which isn't fair either because we're not sitting on the executive boards. 
So I totally agree with you. And, you know, the the same problem is in Australia as well. And it's the same conversation that we're all having. But how can people get these executives to know? I mean, even what we're doing at KBI is, like you said, we are trying to get the awareness out there at the executive level, not at the technical level, because we want people to know that this is a thing and that if they're sitting on a board that they need to be responsible for it and they need to start listening to people like yourselves to know that they have – they're out of their depth. They're not a, a, a CISO or a CIO or a CTO. They, they need to be able to listen to that. Do you think it's just going to be a matter of time that we've evolved or do you think people need to be a little bit more aggressive with saying like, hey, I really need a seat at the table to address these issues that none of you people in this room really understand but for our cybersecurity team? Well, one of the challenges for us is that is, you know, and I've had to come, come in terms of myself, the people who are already sitting at the table have been sitting at the table for a long time. Um, and they are yes. not going to change <laughs> change to listen to me. So I have to change my conversation to them. Can you give I me really an example to- of that? Sure. I'm just really in I'm very I get really wired about this stuff because it's the same thing all over the world and yet yes these people have been sitting there for 30 years you're right they're not going to listen to some some person that comes in and thinks oh well that is some security person or someone from a younger generation so you're absolutely right but what language do you personally use to i guess bamboozle them into into <laughs> you know to 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 think that this is a thing and we, you know we're not trying to uh devalue their position but it, it get them to see what they don't see already from that's why you're in the room. So we see things like, Hey, there's 150,000 vulnerabilities out there and only 85% of our servers are, or 85% of our servers and patch. Right. And we go screaming. Mm-hmm. All they hear is blah, 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 blah. This ah. much. Well, yeah, yeah. They don't even hear the rest of it. They just, hear, that's what they hear. They hear blah, 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 blah. Ah. And that's what they hear every time we open our mouth is blah, 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 blah. <laughs> So one of the things is, so we really have to, we have to try and change that. So one of the things is if we go ahead and we, we're talking about vulnerabilities, for example. So one of the things is if we go ahead and we say, we need to go ahead for ourselves, a vulnerability just because of, of, it's a vulnerability and in Microsoft with someone else's patch doesn't necessarily mean that it is a risk to my computers whatsoever. Just because Nexus or someone else says this is red does not necessarily mean it's a red for my environment, right? Mm-hmm. So I do everything for myself. I do it as a risk metric. So I look at every one of my servers. I looked at every application that runs through it. I look at the people who are running through it and all that kind of stuff. And I'm able to come up with a risk metrics actually on that server. It also helps me be able to patch um, in a a risk management mindset, not this how many reds, how many oranges, how many yellows. Because even if someone's a yellow on that system, it could be really critical. So I think we have to become risk-minded that way. But if I actually went ahead and then you say, okay, Rebecca, I hear that you say being risk-minded, so you're looking at a risk of a system, not just from a, a vulnerability standpoint. So what would happen then if they don't go ahead and they don't patch on our Java, right? Java is always mm-hmm. easy one to pick because that and seems like every day it comes out with a new patch. So they say, no, we will not go ahead and allow you, we will now allow a, a um, in that maintenance window to allow you to this two hours, whatever, to patch our server. Okay, I hear you. So now let me go ahead and say, what's the risk to organization? If I do not patch these servers in that two-hour window, and it ends up being that that application becomes unstable, it's actually going to cause you four hours of downtime during production time. 
Mm-hmm. During that production time, you had, I don't know, 150 call agents who could have each went ahead and made 100 calls during that point of time, which mm-hmm. each would have been 10 sales, which would equated to $1.5 million that you would have lost because I couldn't patch during that maintenance window. Oh, different conversation. Yeah. So it's now more about bottom how, line then, is that correct? Yeah. How is it really going to impact the business? How is it going to impact the business? Because that's what they're looking for all the time is that way. You know, because we don't make them money, but we can save them money, right? Because we can go ahead and if you allow me to do it in the maintenance window, then I'm not going to have, you're not going to have an outage during production time. So we kind of have to switch it um, up that way by showing how it really impacts them. You need that SAN um, storage area network, that extra one that costs you $125,000. You go to a chief financial officer and he sees that you want $125,000 and you already got one. Mm. So, so instead of th- doing that, what's going to happen if you had a dual SAN, then if there was a major outage in the company, instead of taking six hours to be back up, you took 15 minutes back up. Take that same number again. You had 15 minutes to get back up. Now, how many sales did you not lose during that six hour period of time? Because you were only out for 15 minutes, not six hours. So I guess it's like reverse engineering the language and by saying, look, if you're not doing this, it's going to mean you're going to lose this amount of money. So it's so it's really, uh, from what I'm hearing, is that it's about bottom line for a lot of these people, which I understand there are shareholders involved and I get that. So I think for listeners out there, they need to take from what you're saying and the really good piece of advice, which I've loved, is finding out what's important to them and then working your way back to get them to listen. Because then, like you said, like security guys are going to come in and talk about how can people reach out to you? The best way to reach out to me is through LinkedIn something that's important to him, which is sales, then the conversation changes. And I always like to say to people, talk in the right discourse to that person. They're not going to care about the security, but if they care about bottom line and sales, they're more likely to turn their head and listen to you. Correct. Absolutely. So Rebecca, I've absolutely enjoyed our chat. I really have appreciated you giving some amazing insight. Perfect. And is there any last things you'd like to say as a final final thought to any any of our uh, senior leaders listening to our podcast? You know, we all have to be part of the solution. And one of the things is us as security people, we really want to be part of the solution. Um, we want to be brought into the conversation early so we can be part of the full solution. One of the things that I always tell people is, is when they bring things to me at the last moment, a lot of times I have to say no, because I see that you're about to go off a cliff. I don't want to say no. Mm-hmm. I'd rather be brought in very early in the conversation. So then we can go ahead and, and I can tell you what wrapper, what security and privacy and things that I need to put in place so we can go forward. So I don't think that we want to be a, a stumbler block for, um, operations or anything like that what it is is that we need you to help bring us into the conversation early so then mm-hmm. we can be part of the solution um and not um what you guys all fear is that we're going to say no the reason why we have to say no is because you guys bring us in at the last minute when we really have to protect you because we see that unfortunately the bad guys is, are going to take advantage of the company so bring us in early and, and let us be a partner at the table, just like you bring everybody else in at the very beginning. Um, we want to partner with you. We want to be one with you. We really don't want to fight you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate it. And I hope that we can do this again soon. It'll be my pleasure. I'd love to be on a show at any time. Thanks again for joining us. 
I hope you got some insights from this episode of KB Cast with me, KB. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher or Google Play to get every new episode as it's released. And as always, show notes are available from kbcast.com for every single episode. We're building a community, so always love to get feedback, ideas or questions on hello at kbcast.com. 